It was my first time sitting courtside ever, which was such a cool experience. And I decided when I found out that I was going to be sitting, you know, in a place where cameras would be getting us constantly uh, because we were right by the players. I was like, okay, this has to be an opportunity to blow up the plunge. And so I did a few things. I was like, I'm going to bring a plunger with me. And the TV stations are going to see this random fan who has a plunger courtside <laughs> and they're going to start talking about it and it'll lead to interviews and they'll, they'll f have to figure out who was that plunger guy. Like that was the story <laughs> in my head. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to bring a plunger. But then I was worried I wouldn't get through security with a plunger. And so <laughs> I put together a goodie bag of plunger, toilet paper, paper towel, because my view was, I'm going to get to security. They're going to be like, sir, what is this? I'm going to be like, I just ran to the grocery store and I'm going home after the game. And this was just what I bought there. Turns out, by the way, <laughs> I go through the security. They didn't ask a single question. They literally just grabbed the whole bag and the plunger, put it through the scanner, and it was totally oh my fine. God. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Puji. And this is The Crazy Ones. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of The Crazy Ones. We're doing things a little bit differently today. Uh, Jesse and I have been having a lot of things just go on in our lives with work, with life, with travel, and we figured it'd be fun just to have like a, a powwow Without yeah. it feeling scripted, without it feeling like a show, Jesse, what do you what do you want to uh, say about it? Well, you and I haven't caught up, and so I think. And then the other thing is, you know, the the best feedback we've gotten from these is when people are like, "Hey, I just feel like I'm sitting in the room, and you guys are catching up and talking." And so I I was, you know, was, and I'm not a big prepper. I think as Alex knows, and I was like, <laughs> "Let's just get on and talk. Let's let's just see what happens." And so this is the. Uh, no episode episode or something like that yeah uh, i mean so do you yeah, catch up? i, I feel like, like i haven't talked to you i feel like i haven't seen you in several weeks and talked to you i was on spring break with my family there was like lots of whatever we just we haven't caught up so i've seen all this stuff online you've been plunging left right and center so <laughs> catch, catch me up sh sh shilling plungers every day of my life now um yeah i mean there's a lot going on. I would say in terms of just like stress levels and like feeling of balance levels, like I'd say stress, I'm typically very low stress. Like I'd say my average is like a two out of 10, um, which was very different. Like four or five years ago, my average was like a six or seven out of 10. But I would say the last three weeks month has been like a five out of 10. Um, and my feeling of balance and like productivity around the things I want to work on has felt lower than I'd like it to feel. And I think that's just a, a combination of a lot of travel. I had my bachelor party, then I went to South by for a talk. I was in LA this past weekend. I'm going to Chicago tomorrow and I'm going to Miami wow. next week. And I'm not someone who likes travel. I'm like a homebody. I like having my routine. And at the same time, right? Like, um, doing the podcast with you, 60 Second Startup. There's like, you know, transition in the workflow for 60 Second Startup with uh, editing. The plunge, it, you know, it feels like the it is the early days of a business that you constantly feel like you're behind and you're trying to catch up. Right. I, I had another business idea that- How do you know when you're stressed? What are um, the signals you have to yourself? For me- well, when I like really feel anxious, I, I actually feel a weight. Like I, I feel pressure mm -hmm. on my chest. 
I wouldn't say that I'm actually there. I actually, what's creating stress for me, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, is that I like feeling like I'm in a routine where the day before or the night before a, a work day, I've like listed out what I'm going to do. I have my full schedule. Right. I do the things I say I'm going to do. And I feel like I haven't had the ability to really do that in two or three weeks, which feels really shitty because I almost like the feeling of disorganization. When I feel right. disorganized, I don't feel good. How, the chest thing, like, are there other signs to yourself? This is, by the way, one of my favorite questions that my coach introduced me to, which is like, we oftentimes say we're, we're this, we're stressed, we're happy, we're... And he's like, well, how do you know? And it's like, it's like an awareness, a self-awareness thing yeah. where it then teaches you. And I'm like, oh yeah, when this, when I do this, when my brain starts to go down this path or when my body does this thing, that's when I'm feeling this thing. And so I just think it's a great totally. question. Like, Well, I think also to that question, I think to your point, it's like we create stories of the things that create stress for us. And so we right. may create stress even if we don't actually feel it. Like for me, another thing that, I'm feeling is like I'm not getting nearly enough sleep. Like my perfect spot is if I get eight hours and I go to sleep around 10 or 10.30. Right. But for the last several days, it's been like 11.30, 12 o'clock, still waking up at seven. And like a story I have in my head is when I do that enough days straight, I'm just not as sharp. I'm not thinking clearly. Right. But is that true? But, or do, do, like, does it, do you wake up foggier? Like, are you, is it, is the story or are you actually noticing physical sensations or like unarguable I, things? I definitely woke up with physical sensation, say, like I woke up feeling tired. I woke up like, you know, I snoozed my alarm. I woke up with a little bit of a headache, which was weird for me. I don't typically right. wake up with headaches. By the way, this is also a an area that I'm naturally self-conscious about, the area being like feeling sensations and awareness of emotions. Like yeah. one of the stories I've always had for myself is like, I don't feel deeply. I don't have like strong emotions. Like, you know, You're I, I envy... Yeah, I envy so much my fiance who she feels so deeply everything like she cries a lot. She laughs a lot like her range feels like a negative oh, wow. 10 to 10, whereas yeah. my range feels like a negative two to two. And, you know, I think it's even stayed with me in life when people have like called me a robot because I feel I seem unfazed in any situation. Huh. So when you ask that question, that's actually what comes to mind is like it's actually hard for me to always identify what physical sensations I have when I feel stressed or not in like a perfect flow state. Right. Do you internalize it or do you just not feel it? Do you know? I'm not sure if I feel it, but like it so quickly gets put into my subconscious that I don't have the consciousness to be aware of it. Right. Or if I literally don't feel it. Um, and so, yeah, it's something, you know, I, I haven't seen a therapist in a while because it's one of those things where it's so easy to go to therapy when something's wrong, but when things are like fine, you end up getting out of the habit and that's like the mode I'm in right now. But this is when I was last with my therapist, like this is something we spoke about all the time was like, how can I start getting more in touch with having an awareness of like what I'm actually feeling? And one of the things she always told me to do is like when I was feeling any emotion, sit for a second, like pause, yep. stop what I'm doing and spend like 30 seconds or a minute just describing to myself what totally. I am feeling because it builds up that muscle of awareness. Yeah. When I'm with my coach, I'm talking about like being nervous or scared or maybe sad about something. I'll be like, yeah, I'm sad. And then, oh yeah. And I'll start talking. I'll jump to something else. And he's like, oh, yeah, hold on. Like be with this, Jesse, like be with it. And it's actually like really hard for me. My wife has been seeing a coach 
um, for a variety of reasons. And like on Sunday she saw her and, and like her type and my type are funny, like funny enough, not, not compatible at all. in and in, in like the broad strokes <laughs> things, um, nor are, are, our, uh, astrology signs, which is kind of funny. You guys um, are defying odds in terms of astrology and Enneagrams. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, but like, it was interesting cause it was like, you know, she's a type two, which is like the helpy helperton type. And she feels, you know, she'll feel her emotions deeply, like you're saying. And I apparently, you know, I apparently push away negative or like bad emotions. I just don't. It's like, it, and it's hard for, I said the same thing you just said to her. I was like, I don't know when I'm not feeling, like when I'm suppressing them or I'm just not feeling feeling them. Like it's, it's a yeah. very subtle line for me, but apparently I do that. And then like, you know, she needs someone to feel that with her to fully get the satisfaction of them. And, and she also doesn't, you know, she's like prideful about being good at helping. And so if she's overwhelmed. And I'm just like, hey, yeah, I got it. No problem. She's it like pisses her off more, actually, like her type or whatever. And I'm just trying to be helpful. It's interesting just the dynamics of certain patterns and conflicts we have and like just to actually get behind them and understand them quite a bit. The self-awareness thing for humans, for entrepreneurs especially, I think is is like the most important thing. Well, it's funny because <clears throat> this whole thing about how do I know I'm stressed, like uh, a, a self-consciousness around my feeling of stress or like feeling of emotions. We talked about it in the past, but it's very relevant today of how it bleeds into my work life and building businesses. Because for example, one feeling that I've had in general, but specifically with the plunge right now, is because I don't feel, or the story I have is because I don't feel my emotions deeply, it prevents me from feeling um, productive anxiety and paranoia that would lead me to be really proactive about building my businesses. And so like one of my stories right now is like, okay, the plunge is going live on Kickstarter in June. I know how many reservations we need in order right. to ha to raise $300,000 on Kickstarter. It's like basically we need uh, 400 reservations a week. Right now for context, we're at 45. That is not good. A and so part, what I'm saying to myself is like, damn, am I being proactive enough or am I not? Because I'm not feeling the stress of just how far off we are right now. And if I was feeling right. it more, we'd be more proactive. So like it absolutely bleeds in to how I think about myself as a professional. You're paranoid about being not being paranoid enough. <laughs> <laughs> dude yeah. come on yeah. be a little nice <laughs> to yourself come on yeah you're paranoid you're like but, oh I'm not paranoid enough <laughs> I need to be it's more seriously, paranoid seriously it's, it's, it's one of the things that I always worry about again because I think that was something I, I've admired so much about my co-founder Austin is like he has a perfect uh, I consider it to be a perfect level of paranoia where like I've used the, the phrase in the past like bomb sniffing dog of business like at all times, he's looking for what are the cracks that could be detrimental to our business. And again, these are all stories, but it's like right. that's what I always admired about he, him. Do you know what his Enneagram type is? No. I have to get him to do the test. I, I don't Adrian's think he a ever type has. six. And, and what type does that six mean? is like the warrior. She's like, she makes, you know, she looks like we look at a candidate for, for a new job, right? We're looking for like a recruiting talent person. And I'm like, oh my God, look at this positive thing. Look at this positive thing. Oh my, she could do this. And she's like, well, there's this problem, this problem. And, you know, I, I think what I would try to get your head around, if you can, is like your tendencies are your tendencies and so are Austin's and they can be very productive, like from above the line. Like if you're in presence, they're very, they're great. You, you have so much creativity and the ability. And when you're below the line about them or upset or feeling threat, like they, 
And I think the same thing's true for her. Like, like her her tendencies are they can totally debilitate her ability to be really, but then they're also great because she thinks about risk and she's like ahead of the next step, you know, and I, I'm some, and when I'm unleashed, I'm not worrying about any of that stuff, which is actually not good either. Right. I'm too crazy. I'm like <laughs> totally too far out there. Just like, woo, this is fun. And like your point yeah. around, maybe you're not stressing enough, but then, but then when it's integrated in a, in a healthy way, you're, you're thoughtful about those things that you're stopping. And like, that's kind of one of my big learnings has always been that all of these things, again, just like everyone says, your best quality is your worst quality. Like, it all just is kind of how you show up and and being aware of of when you're doing kind of the unproductive version of, of yourself versus the productive yeah. version of yourself. How, how have you thought about like how much you need to work on, call it staying above the line and not being self-sabotaging with the things that also make you great versus just delegating out kind of where you have those weaknesses so they're taken care of without you having to build up kind of like your weak areas? Yeah, I, th- I think I'll reframe the the question a bit or the answer. Like, the more I do all of this conscious leadership, and even like some of it gets to like the levels of Buddhism and stuff. Like, the more the more I just end up in going, oh, this is all just can you stay present? Can yep. you stay you know above the line in the language that conscious leadership uses, which is really just saying present, meaning not not making your choices and your decisions and your holding meetings from a place of threat or a should can you just be in the open space of like, like one thing my coach will say, and I started saying it too. He'll like, there's no problems here. Like, Hey, with the plunge 45, that's cool. That's you have 45 orders. You, you made up that you want 400 good for you. Why didn't you make up? You want a thousand or why didn't you make up? You want 50. Okay, cool. There's no problems here, Alex. What do you want to do now? And you may want to go, you know what? I'm fine with the 45. Actually, you may go, no, I have a cool couple cool ideas. I want to get going. And you're, but you're choosing that from a place of sort of like, I'm not under duress or threat. I'm just choosing totally. what I want. And I find that like all of the other stuff falls away in light of that. And some, sometimes that means, okay, I think I want to delegate this because this isn't something that gets me excited in there. But, but when I'm in the state of threat, which most, by the way, 98% of people are 98% of the time. Like that's, that's how we are as standard. That's part of our human wiring. We're constantly going, well, should I do that? Or should I do this? Or this, this is not my strength. Like, and we're living in this place of, I've heard another framework that's very similar to this. It's like, you're either in confusion or clarity. And it's very similar to above the line below. It's like, oh, you're either in confusion. You know, right now you feel a little confused. You're like, am I going hard yep. enough? Am I not going hard enough? Like you're in these circles or am I in clarity? And from like, there's nothing wrong. If there was nothing broken, if you would just go, yeah, like by June, I hope to be at 400. You know, I was talking to an entrepreneur yesterday who who reached out to me who said, you know, you seem like you've kind of gone through this transition and he kind of had a similar version of yours, which is like, is he not, you know, getting the most out of himself? Like, should he be working on bigger things? And, and, uh, and it was an interesting conversation and, and I've had similar thoughts, kind of everyone yeah, I was gonna say, You've talked about that in the past with like, you know, why I think we were even talking about like, you know, what Brett is doing with figure and you're like, I mean, that's like a huge swing and you're like, yeah. what am I playing too small with the companies within gateway? Yeah, totally. And and I think, I think we, everyone has versions of those thoughts or they're trying to you know, like, are we, am I going hard enough? Am I going big enough? And I think a lot of the times that's just a form of threat for yourself where you're not, where you're using it, you know, as a way to threaten versus kind of just asking the question of like, what do I want? And and what's yeah. actually gets me up and excited in the morning, and uh, you know I, I think there's something to that. But on the plunge, you know, you've been posting these videos out in New York, <laughs> like getting people to do it. Talk about that a little bit. I'm curious. Well, well by, by the way, did you 
Did you ever read that uh, exchange that I sent you from the the VC? Did I send this to you? I don't know. Say more. Okay. Basically, uh, I was posting plunge videos, and I got a DM from an unnamed VC, and um, and I recorded uh, a short episode about this, and the message was basically like, everyone is cheering you on about the plunge. I'm going to be the one who who says it as it is. Uh, you're going to look back 18 months from now and say you've wasted your time. Wow. And and I responded basically like, hey, I appreciate, appreciate the feedback. And I was a slightly defensive, but also curious. I said, you know, I'd like to know, like, how do you know that I'll feel regret 18 months from now if you don't know what my goals are, what my motivations are, right. like any of these things? And the person said, fair, but I think uh, that you are not taking a big enough swing, which is such like, uh, again, a validate, it, it's such so validating to the story I have in my head about being fearful of not taking a big enough swing. You know, I explained to this person that, you know, my goal after the brew is like, just start with something that feels like total play that I feel like I can learn and grow in an area of business that I haven't had the opportunity. And their their belief was, that this is a game, they were like, if you want to build an e-commerce, go either buy an e-commerce business, they're like, go buy a business that's already doing right. sales in e-commerce. And I, I basically said like, I don't find buying businesses to be particularly fun right now. And then they're like, well, at least pick a business that you know there's product market fit. Like it's a category that it's a behavior that already exists. Right. And, and all of this to say, we went back and forth and Did the you conversation- know him well or her well? Uh, I know this person, I'd say relatively well. We've gone back and forth on Twitter, I don't know, like half a dozen times. And I've had a Zoom call with this person once. I will say I left that exchange like feeling, it was a combination of feeling like frustration, ang uh, frustration, anger, self-consciousness. And then at times being like, you know, fuck this person. Like I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. Right. But the, the thing that really got under my skin was probably four or five days later, I put I put out a tweet basically about and I've told you about this this like content agency idea of ghostwriting for founders, executives, CEOs and this person DM'd me with that tweet and just wrote there we go. And basically I think what they were insinuating is that our conversation led to yeah. me <laughs> going after a bigger swing. And so um yeah that that yeah, was I would say like it, that's a bummer. I mean you know, I went to Penn and Wharton, and so a lot of my friends are in finance and VC. And obviously, like I had trained that way. I worked at Goldman, and one of the risks of becoming a VC, and just like any job, like you know, this having built a business, like I remember feeling this at Ampush once. I don't know if you ever felt this, but maybe five or six years in, I was like, "Wow, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, their brains must be so uniquely formed." Because I realized that I had been sitting in this seat, not because they were they started that way, but because just by being in a seat where you get this information and you see these trends and you're these bright people are like I remember after you know we had one point one hundred fifty people at Ampush, I was you know reporting in, I was like all these clients, I was like wow, I, I'm like seeing so many interesting things. My brain is has been shaped uniquely by that, and I wonder. And one of the challenges with being a VC, or one of the risks, I should say, especially the like the medium-aged VCs, the super young ones don't know what they're doing. The older ones have like the the middle ones. In my experience, every, you know, it's sort of the the hammer and a nail thing, right? It, it's like it, mm -hmm. if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So the, everything they look at is through the expected value of how big could this be, 
If I put a dollar in, will it get a multiple over it? And there's a lot of, in my opinion, being right in that business. They have to be right. Like, cause that's, that's just what, if they're wrong a lot, then they're not good at their job. Right. So they have to be right yep. about the investments they make. And so then they start to kind of apply that framework everywhere to everything without the nuance of understanding somebody's individual goals or what matters to someone. Totally. And I think that's yeah, I mean, the way that The way that I've always thought about it is if you were to build businesses as dictated by the way that VCs are taught to think, you would just permanently build enterprise-level B2B SaaS businesses over and over yeah. and over. And that may be right for some people, but it's not just like going to maximize enjoyment and joy for the people who are building the companies. Yeah, totally. And, and I think like the it's not wrong either, by the way. It's just not right yeah. for every situation and every person and everything. Of and course. Like, if it's not obvious that the plunge is kind of like a fun passion project for you, this person's also like, I immediately invalidate the perspective. I'm like, what? How do you not totally. know that that this is clearly a fun thing? Like, you know, <laughs> waste time. You don't need more money. I mean, you could have more. Great. But that's not your objective. Right. Totally. And and so, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, that sucks that, that people, you know, come in that approach. But but that is what it yeah, is. One thing you said well, I want to uh, I want to talk, make sure we talk about that. I OK. I and then can we talk about you a little bit? <laughs> yeah. You wrote this tweet that was like, I'm shameless. One of my, one, you know, one of my great traits as an entrepreneur is that I'm shameless. I want to talk about that for a second. Like, what's the, yeah. what does that mean to you? And what do you like, what kind of advice do you give people around that? Also, I wrote that tweet after being with your uh, Ampush co-founder at the basketball game. That, that yeah. was, that was the inspiration for that tweet because what happened was, it was my first time sitting courtside ever, which was such a cool experience. And I decided when I found out that I was going to be sitting, you know, in a place where cameras would be getting us constantly uh, because we were right by the players, I was like, okay, this has to be an opportunity to blow up the plunge. And so I did a few things. I was like, I'm going to bring a plunger with me. And the TV stations are going to see this random fan who has a plunger courtside and they're going to start talking about it and it'll lead to interviews and they'll they'll f have to figure out who was that plunger guy like that was the story <laughs> in my head <laughs> and so i was like i'm going to bring a plunger but then i was worried i wouldn't get through security with a plunger and so <laughs> i put together a goodie bag of plunger toilet paper paper towel because my view is i'm going to get to security they're going to be like sir what is this i'm going to be like i just ran to the grocery store and i'm going home after the game and this was just what i bought there turns out by the way i go through the security they didn't ask a single question they literally just grabbed the whole bag and the plunger put it through the scanner and it was totally oh my fine God. But but what I also That's did is incredible. I printed out a massive QR code and printed it on my chest. <laughs> and so I went to the game with all these things, ended up not taking out the plunger because I was worried the referee was going to trip over it, which honestly, I probably should have done that because that would have been even better. Amazing. That um, would have been memed and, all and, over the world. It would have. <laughs> it would have. And so I ended up getting 53 scans of my QR code, which is like good, not great. I thought I was going to have zero. I think the big issue is that the QR code gets blurred on TV, so I need a bigger, clear one next time. But mm -hmm. after this, I, w I was just thinking to myself, it's like, what are the, some of the similarities in like what I'm doing with The Plunge now and what I did with Morning Brew and what I plan to do with any businesses I'm, I do moving forward? And it's like, I've just thought to myself, like, I'm willing to do things that people won't do sheerly out of embarrassment or f yeah. or a fear of getting in trouble. Not like in trouble by the law, but like just like getting like chastised. And I remember for Morning Brew, 
you know, something that Austin and I talk about a lot was we would put slips of paper down in the winter garden, which was the main area of the business school. Every day, we did it every day for three weeks. We probably went wow. through 5,000 slips of paper every day. And, and at the end of the day, you'd see them thrown out. And we got an email one day from the venture, the Ross Business School Venture Fund basically uh, saying, hey, we will never be interested in investing in your company because of your lack of respect for the business school commons. Mm. And I will say in that moment, I did feel bad for like the people who had to pick up the piece of paper. Like I felt bad about that. But in my head at the time, I was just like, this is what is being done to get people to use our product. Like th th we, we have to do this. And so, yeah, it's just like I've never shied away like these things don't embarrass me. Like it takes a, a lot to embarrass me. And I've found that to be an asset because that is like an emotional threshold that people won't break through as they try to will something into existence. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a, it's such a powerful thing. And, you know, I think the the fancy word for it, or, you know, I'd say is being bold, right? Yeah. You know, shameless, bold, like you're just willing to go and put something out there. And what's interesting, I think is we talk about the type seven and all these types and all this, everything. I've noticed across a lot of my entrepreneurial friends, especially the more successful ones, you could see it again, like Travis Kalanick and Mark Zuckerberg are very different personalities, right? But both of them are were willing to like push the envelope to a point that most people would have probably backed off of at some point in very different ways, right? And same with like Mark Benioff, like, you know, as a random example of Salesforce, B2B, like there is that common trait amongst entrepreneurs. Uh, and I'd say like, like any entrepreneurial trait, I think there are obviously some people who are more naturally inclined that way. But I think it's also something you can build. And and it's funny because totally. the CEO of Ampush, John, you know, him and I kind of grew up together and, and he was always gave me a lot of good feedback. And and he actually started like watching me and he started kind of coining some of the things I was doing. So one thing he would he, he coined, which was kind of a funny one, was he's like he was a big poker player. He's a professional poker player for four years. He was like, oh, there's wow. a thing when you're down in the hand and you know you're going to lose. And it's in poker. I didn't know this. It's called do anything. You know, pretend to go all in and then decide you're not going. Like, just just start to do something crazy to throw your opponent off. And he's like, Jesse somehow does like you know deals falling apart. And he'd say, Jesse will just like ask like, well, what if what if we bought your business? Like, I, I do weird things like that. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, and it, it changes the dynamic really fast in a situation, right? And that's like a like the do anything thing. He used to give me key feedback that I was like, sometimes I came across as too commercial. And I was like, no, that's, that's, thank you for the feedback, but like, no, that's, that's it. That's like, I, everyone knows where I stand. It doesn't mean I'm not a caring so, person. I won't be the first person to help someone get a job. But, but like, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to cross that threshold, I think the other thing John mentioned, which I think was, was really helpful for ambushers, we used to train this, is you got to kind of like, you know, have you ever been punched? Like, have you ever been in a fight? Uh, once. And like, you know, they say this, right? Like now that you've been punched once, like you, you could be punched again, right? Yeah, because there's so much fear before the first punch so of what is getting, getting punched, punched like. And then once you've survived it, you're like, yeah, that's fine, whatever, right? Like I've gotten punched in the 100%. face. And, it's like, and and I think that's the other thing we tried to train people was like, you got to go take those bold risks because even if they blow up in your face to know that nothing, like you're, you're, you're still there, your body's still intact, like it's really empowering. And that's also what builds that muscle of shamelessness or boldness, which is like, yeah. you went through that, you went through security and then you're like, oh, it's fine. You know, it's not a big deal. And I think, so it can be taught, but I think it's such an important trait for people. Well, and, and to be honest, like I at least find it mildly addicting. Like I, not only 100%. Uh, do I, like, like, like not, 
it's like that fear of or of embarrassment. Once, like I was walking through security, my heart was palpitating more than it had palp- palpitated in like months. And like that feeling was incredible. It's like the adrenaline junkie who skydives. Like that oh, was yeah. that for me. And I think there's two things that you called out about being shameless that are really important that make it possible or don't make it possible for people. One is like the way that John described you is like, you're kind of always thinking about what's possible, right? Like you look at this world of possibilities and I think a lot of people will constrain themselves to kind of being the horse with the blinders on where you have to want, run in one direction. But it sounds like the way your brain naturally works is you just keep asking what's possible, what's possible, what's possible. And maybe even you get more creative, the more constraints are put around what is possible. And then the second is around like, I think people stop themselves from being bold either out of fear of embarrassment or fear of appearing like a sellout, like constantly trying to sell or shill something. On the second one, like fear of selling something is like my perception has always been if I am selling something that I'm proud of, I am never going to uh, feel bad or embarrassed about selling that thing because I feel like I'm helping people. I'm giving them value. The second, um, which is fear of embarrassment, you know, it doesn't even have to appear in like the world of bringing a plunger into a stadium and being the guy who wore a QR code on his body. I see this all the time with like creating content. Like when I ask people, why are they not creating content on Twitter or LinkedIn to build their brand? The answer is always, I know how valuable it is, but I'm worried I'm going to be judged for what I put out into the world. And just to use like a small example, right? This like content agency that I told you about, like the way it even became an idea is I, I, saw people creating content, founders and CEOs creating content. I'm like, they're not very good at it, but clearly they understand the importance of it. Right. What if I just, uh, and Anker uh, from uh, Teachable, who now, now is Ocho, he did this with Ocho. So I was like, I'm going to take a, a move out of his playbook. I basically was like, if you're a founder who's doing more than $10 million in revenue, you understand the power of building audience and and you're willing to spend five to $10,000 a month to build up your audience uh, so that you create business opportunities, DM me. I have a friend who does this. That friend right. was me. I got 50 <laughs> DMs. So now right. demand is built in. So now if I want to do this, I'm just building into demand. If I was embarrassed about putting that tweet out, that opportunity would have never happened. Totally. I, I, the other way I flip this on people sometimes is like, yeah, you're not that interested. You're, you're like, so you, so your content, like your problem is not going to be that people are going to see your content and judge you. <laughs> it's going to be that your yeah. content's not very good and they're not going to see it. <laughs> and, and like, like, but that's the reality of all these things, right? Like the more I've been doing all this TikTok stuff and barely gets watched. And like, it, the hard thing is actually to get good enough content that people want to watch it. And when they, when totally. your content's not very good or not very interesting, it just doesn't get that much. You're not going to even have the eyeballs to judge you. <laughs> exactly. Right. There's not even enough people, not to mention like you're lucky if you break through the noise and people actually know who you are. And I, I wouldn't go to the levels of like some of these people who are clearly just doing it to be controversial. That's not my style, but, but I think yeah. like it, it, there is really that balance of, of getting judged. But I think that's like shamelessness as a, you know, shamelessness or boldness, whichever you prefer as a, critical trait to both have as an entrepreneur or as well as develop as an entrepreneur. Okay. I want to talk about you for a second um, because I I know some things that have gone on in your life in the last few weeks, but not everything. One thing I know that you've done is you went to shop talk for the first time in a while. And it's funny because I would say two weeks before you went to Shop Talk, I basically put out a tweet that got <laughs> crushed by some people saying that I went to South by it and you wouldn't oh, yeah. tell from being at South by that 
there's anything going on in the economy right now. I wonder if this is the best use of time for founders. So it seems like you had a different perception of Shop Talk. What what was your uh, experience? Yeah, for what it's worth, I mean, South by and Shop Talk are pretty different. Uh, you know, I've been yep. I've been to both now. You know, Shop Talk is an extremely commercial place. I mean, there was a there was a a room that was probably four football fields in size with little round tables with with one on one chairs, completely filled. I'm talking like. 1400 or 2000 seat like one on one oh my going God. on every 15 minutes. And so how are those organized? Like who's organizing organize, those I mean, That's chats. part of their magic and and there there's actually these two founders, they're an Indian couple who's like who are the kings of the conference industry. Uh I've just heard this through the grapevine kind of but the you know, they basically build these things up, they make them really commercial. Their their secret sauce from what I understand is they they basically essentially pay for the buyers to come out. So if you think about any conference, right, like Conference 101, like how do they become things? Well, there's some content that that is valuable for people to be there, kind of. There's a bunch of people who, in every case who buy something. And in the case of Shop Talk, it's the e-commerce businesses. It's the re- retailers and D2C brands. They're kind of like the buyers, right? And the sellers are the e-com tech businesses like Kahani or pick your favorite one, right? Yeah. Algolia, TikTok had a huge boot there. I mean, anyone who's selling anything to e-com. And but it, like I've been to all kinds of different conferences. I've been I used to go to this one for Goldman that was, you know, VCs and growth equity and CEOs and founders of of private late, you know, companies. And like yeah. it's there's it's always a, a buyer it's a pop-up marketplace. It's always a real-time marketplace. And then so so these guys really intelligently get the buyers. They basically pay for them to come out and even give them like a credit. And in exchange, they have to attend meetings. Like they have to meet with people and then they create this whole matching engine where you sign up for you know so on and and one of the highlights by the way was kahani did not get we had a guy from growth assistant there and a guy from kahani there the growth assistant guy got four times the amount of meetings and it was just like one of my takeaways i wrote was like man these guys are tired they need resources like it's just very clear you could get that feeling um but the one cool thing about the kahani Kahani highlight was we got one meeting with nike and we were like how'd that happen why did you want to meet with us well because through through this matching engine yeah yeah I was like, why'd you want to meet with us? And it was like, it was like the dream of every entrepreneur. She's like, I want to repurpose my social content on the site. Oh my God. We that's like, incredible. Yes. <laughs> and so it was, that was an, that was a very big highlight. And she was, then she was like, well, Nike's really hard to do business with it. Of course there's, I'm sure it'll take us a year, even if she's excited about it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's very commercial. And so Look, I, I think for any founders thinking about conferences, I think there's a, a handful of, of reasons to go. I think number one, far and away, and like I had goals, like I had a text thread with these two uh, folks from the two companies. Yep. And I was like, on Sunday, I was like, what's our goals, guys? Like, I want you to, sh- you know, get 50 business cards and meetings set up, like, you know, 25 meetings get set up from this. Each business gets five or 10 customers from this. And it's easy, easy to kind of have the ROI. I want us to go find 10 people who we think are shortlisted for future recruiting. Um, which like you think about the best salespeople get to go to to these conferences and stand at the booths and you're, I like I probably did rapid interviews you know not not obviously so, yeah but, so smart oh, what do you do tell me about the business How, you know and I was I was out there um, and then I was like let's learn some areas like let's learn some new things we didn't know before and so those are kind of our goals I mean I think the commercial aspect of it everyone's in one place so lots of meetings can happen very fast I think one walk on a conference room floor. Like I almost want to make it a requirement for Gateway X before we start a business. We have to go walk a conference floor in our in the industry because 
dude, you learn so much about what's there, what's not there. You can kind of build a market map in your head uh, by just walking on what the were conference a, what, floor. What were a few of your takeaways from walking the conference floor? The biggest thing that, you know, industry or market-wise was, dude, there's a bunch of nine-figure e-com tech businesses, n- none of which, like with the exception of Clavio and maybe Attentive, have anything to do with Shopify. Which is like, if you think about like the the sound and the rhetoric on Twitter and other places, you'd go, man. Yeah, it makes Shopify. you think that Shopify is everything. And and dude, there's and and there's a business for ecom. Every ecom problem you could imagine in your mind, there's actually a pretty big business building it. So I'll give you some examples. Like one of my good friends is the CMO of Signified, and you know, Signified helps the WalMarts of the world with this challenge of, hey, someone comes and they're going to do a fraudulent transaction. I don't want to reject everyone. Like just because everyone has a blue shirt, I don't want to reject them. I know that some people are six two, and you know they are actually going to be fraudsters. The other people aren't going to be fraudsters, and it adds like fifty basis points of margin to the business. And he's like, "Yeah, it's a nine figure business. Uh, there's we have two other competitors that are similar in size, and we're not even twenty five percent of the of the TAM of the GMV. It's wild. And and I'm like Shopify. He's like, "Yeah, whatever. I mean, maybe, I'm sure they do stuff with Shopify brands, but like that's not there. Like this is a totally random business of like fraud detection." Another random example that blew my mind was, I forgot, it's Cindio. It's called Cindio. It's kind of a roll-up. Okay. But like, you know, you just think of a problem. Samsung or any manufacturer of any product, uh, you know, they have all these specifications. The new Samsung Tenzer QZ TV with these. Da, 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 da. They've got like, you know, hundreds of retailers. Costco, Amazon, Best Buy. How do those sync to their their product specs? You need a tech for that, right? So they're the, they're one. That's one of their big products, which is like the manufacturer changes their thing and they push it out via API or whatever to all these different things, so that it can stay up to date and in sync at any given moment. It's a huge business. It's wild. And so, yeah, I think that was probably the biggest takeaway in terms of like broader industry learnings. And then in our sector, I mean, you know, it was, it's interesting. There's a there's there was a lot of discussion about shoppable video and mo and like exactly the trends you'd think. Um, but they, you know, there there wasn't a lot of activity, like the same kind of thing we've talked about. Like it's the market doesn't feel like it's quite there yet. Well, just to go back for one second to the first thing you said, which is you had someone from Kahani there, you had someone from Growth Assistant there, and you said Growth Assistant had four times as many meetings, right? From the matching engine, right? So it's it's a good apples to apples comparison. Yeah. So what what does that tell you? Um, It tells me these guys need resources. Like, Like Kahani takes resources, right? We need you to get your content up and running. We need to do a bunch of different things. Growth Assistant gives you resources, and I think I think that was just like one. It was like all these these brands and these these folks are are looking for resources. I think the other big thing I heard a lot about offshoring, and I never really appreciated this, is like it's on everyone's list, but a lot of people are very intimidated by it, and they're afraid. You know, they're afraid of language barriers, hours issues. They're afraid of low quality talent and wasting their time. Totally. There's like this hustly group of people on Twitter who talk about it all the time, but they're very much the the minority. The vast majority of people go, yeah, I keep hearing about that. Gosh, I don't know where to start with it, right? Yeah. And and that's like, they, they meet this guy, Kyle Boyd. He's like a Italian guy from Boston. He's American, obviously, right? Italian heritage. And he's like, don't worry about it. I've got these set up. And everyone's like, oh, okay, great. Like, I'm going to go to you to get my offshoring. And so it is actually pretty interesting that that's, it's on everyone's list, but there's sort of an intimidation factor and seeing a company that does it, they all wanted to, to meet with them. And and he just got yeah. a lot of meetings. So, I have uh, I have one last question for you is like, you're thinking, I know you're thinking a lot about like 
streamlining your calendar and like clearing things out right now. And you had mentioned earlier about delegation, and this is like a very big topic in my head right now because as I've started working earlier stage again, like on the plunge, I've realized, like I always thought I was great at delegating. I really thought I was like exceptional at delegating. And I've realized I think I'm actually pretty shitty at it. Mm-hmm. Like I, uh, you know, today to my partner for the plunge, like I asked him if he could do certain things with our paid acquisition. Like if he could run, start running our Facebook campaigns, if he could help AB test our websites. And I was like holding on to those activities before while doing like all of our organic content and our ambassador stuff. And I was thinking about like, why have I been holding on to this stuff? And I think the big reason is one, like I completely overestimate how much I'm able to get done in a day. Uh, And I think two, for whatever reason, like uh, giving up control of something I quote unquote think I'm gonna be better at, even though I'm not exceptional at it, is something that I do. And so, yeah, it was like a big learning for me. I always thought I was good at delegating until I've haven't delegated well over the last month. Right. How do you how do you think about within like your companies like your kind of your threshold for delegation versus just doing the thing yourself? You know, the the delegation is a is a hard thing. Uh, I think one thing that helps me is I'm pretty lazy. Like I just don't <laughs> like to do work, and so I'm really good at finding out other people to do work. Um, but that doesn't mean that that also runs the risk. My <laughs> risks typically when I delegate are more abdicate abdication related. Meaning so by like the way, giving- that was the third thing that I was worried about, which is like, I fear that it, every time I delegate something, someone will be mad at me because they're gonna be like, oh, he, he pushed this work on me. What is he doing now? That's always my fear. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I have that a little bit, but I don't, I don't, I mean, you're, you're the boss, like it's your business. You're in charge. I, I think I've kind of given up on that. Like that one doesn't bother me as much. I've realized people actually want that guidance and, and it's, you have that story in your head and they don't, they're like, I'm working for this person, you know, I'm working for or with totally. this person and, and. So I think there's there's like the laziness thing slash other like I think there's other spiritually things to try to understand your stories like oh I'm afraid that they're gonna they're gonna think I need to do more or like whatever and I think that's a big thing that people need to confront which is before you think about any tactics and like and specifics because there's like a pyramid here right there's like philosophical uh, stories in your head are they gonna judge me am I am I lazy am I right. you know uh, what stops me from delegating? Do I do I think I'm better than them? Therefore, I'm not going. So there's all that stuff. So that's the that's the first stuff you got to confront, in my opinion, when you're learning how to delegate. Um, you know, Adrian, I'll, I'll pick on her again. She's like, she doesn't like to give up control. She has this thing of wanting control, and she knows it, and it's part of you know her thing. And so like she knows, and so that's again, that's the thing she has to confront her need for control. Um, so that's everyone has different triggers around delegation, right? Yep. Then the next one up is uh, you probably I've written about this framework. I, uh, there's a there's a combo platter framework that I love to use called the leadership ladder, and it combos with another thing called task relevant maturity, which is a mouthful but actually makes a lot of okay. sense. I haven't so, heard of either of those. So so the leadership ladder is essentially imagine a ladder, and you know the most basic level entry level job you would say the person would say tell me what to do, Alex, and then at the next level up they go I think we should do this. The next level up, they would say, I recommend we do this. The, the next level up, they would say, I'm going to do this. The next level up, you know, you're a CEO and you have a board, you, you would say something like, I did this already. Here, here are my results and here's what I what happened. And then there's maybe one, I forget, there's like seven levels. But it, that's essentially this is, all the- This is like what Jonathan Swanson talked about with like delegating to executive assistants, like is like the levels uh, of by which 
someone is like has superpowers in delegation where it's like first order taking, but at the end, he I think he called it like nirvana, where they're doing things you haven't even asked them to do because they know that this is something you would want done. Totally, totally. And it's and it's something that you build, you know, you have to put in the reps, but like there is a thing of first under assessing where the person is, right? And then and then from the from the leader's you know perspective, it's it's actually what level are you flying at? Are you at the hey, go do these five specific things? Are you at the what do you think we should do? What do you recommend we do? What did you do already? And asking, you know, you decide kind of where to fly. And oftentimes where delegation breaks down is like, you're either flying too low. The person is as at the, hey, I know what to do next. Stop telling me what to do, all these specific yep. things. That's micro. Or it's the flip, which is like, they need various prescriptive instructions. And you're like, oh yeah, just tell me what you did yesterday. And they're like, <laughs> I, I need I need specific. And so we actually used it at Ampush and, and I continue to use it to actually calibrate very openly, like where on the leadership ladder do you want me to be and where do you want to be on this? Because that I like lets that. us have an open conversation about where to where to kind of hang out. And then there's a constant energy and effort to your point and what Jonathan Swanson said around how do you up level a person? Hey, hey, you know what? You've been saying I think a lot. I would like you to start coming in with recommendations and tell me what your what do you recommend we do and, and why do we do that? The other concept I talked about is task relevant maturity, right? And this is a really important tie-in. There are things that, uh, that like, you know, you and I have both sold a company. So if someone were to go, where are you on the ladder? We're probably in the middle. You know, we're not, we're not investment bankers. We haven't done it so many times that we would be able to say, watch out. I'm going to plan the whole and run the whole process. But like, we could tell you what we'd recommend. We'd kind of know where to go next, you know. And if we were mentoring someone who's never sold a company, right? Say Carolyn at Unblow, someone like She'd go, Jesse, tell me what to do at each step. Because in this task, yep. I'm not mature, right? And so there's this concept of by task. Or, you know, for, and uh, the flip of it is for doing inventory management, she's very high on the task. She probably knows more than I do about it, right? So I wouldn't. the idea that I would dictate to her or even I would just go, hey, what have you been doing? Oh, you reordered some and you thought we should double the order? Okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. And so understanding and, again, making that an explicit part of the conversation, which in your case you'd say, have you done Facebook ads before? Oh, no, I haven't. Okay, well, I've done a little bit more than you. So I think it'd be helpful if you tell me specifically what you're working on. And I'll tell you what I recommend you do. And, and let's iterate like that until we get to this point. I love that. And then that. the last, so that's the then the tip of the of the, my little pyramid here. I should draw this. Um, <laughs> I just made this up. Um, I love tip it. Of, yeah, you, tip of, you should post about this next. And then everyone's going to reference Jesse's pyramid. Yeah, the, the tip of the pyramid is actual tactical things. So reporting you know, I'm a big fan of daily reporting when there's numbers involved. I'm a big fan of a weekly, at least a weekly check-in for any major initiative that's going on. So there's certain like touch points so that you're not abdicating. And in those touch points, you establish that like anything is fair game. Like any, hey, what's this going on with this number? You know, oh yeah, what are we doing to improve that? And so it's not like you're, you've just said, oh yeah, send me the CPA once a week and I'll, I'll, uh, we'll see if the Facebook stuff, you know, you're sitting down and problem solving with the person asking questions, pushing them in certain ways uh, as a means of sort of like building their skills and their development. And the review, I think review as a cultural thing is a really important thing because it teaches, it's a way you can teach somebody through through the process of review and feedback. I love that. By the way, I just want to say I've loved this format of conversation because like selfishly, it just feels like if we were just like sitting, having coffee at a coffee shop, we would have done exactly this. And so now we just get to do this and then other people get to listen to this. So I love this. Um, and in classic Alex for action, if you, if you liked it, email us at the crazy one <laughs> and tell exactly. us if this format was better or worse and then share it with someone. 
and we're about we're just going to finish with a startup AMA, which is where we take questions from all of you and we answer one or two of them each week. And so if you have any questions about whether it's issues you're dealing with in your business, um, priorities that you think we could be helpful with, as Jesse said, shoot us an email at thecrazyonesatmorningbrew.com. Uh, let's just do one startup AMA before we wrap this thing up. We have a bunch of questions from listeners, and I'm scrolling through um, all the questions that Ray, our producer, shared with us. Okay, this is um, a question from a listener that says, at what point are people beyond the point of being able to create amazing startups? I know the true answer is never, but now that you also understand trying to balance family, kids, et cetera, and given that for most people, drive decreases to some extent with age, what do you think? Or alternatively, at what age does it become much harder for a founder to succeed? For example, I imagine a 55-year-old first-time founder will not exactly have the VCs lining up unless they were a partner at McKinsey. How do you think about your drive and motivation changing as you're getting older? And do you find yourself less motivated than you were when you were starting Ampush? I find myself motivated by different things. You know, my son, I, I sent my son and my father-in-law yesterday to a blues game because my son like really wanted to get on the Jumbotron and like, just like his, uh, my father-in-law is a huge And he loved the fan. first game, right? Like, didn't he have a, a, an amazing time? Yeah. The first game, he had this great time. We took him out early. He was upset that we had to leave the third period. You know, his sister was there. She, we didn't want them to get not sleep. Last night, we said, you stay until... Until it's over, he got home at ten thirty, which is really late. His bedtime's like eight. He had a blast, you know, and and like that motivate. Like I don't know, I'm motivated to like give him unique life experiences. And so, yeah, I think I think my pure drive to be really successful and make a lot of money is definitely different than when I was twenty five. Um, but I, I don't know that I'm less ambitious. I'm like more ambitious for a balanced life, if that makes sense, like a holistic experience and all those different aspects of it. I think to answer the question, I mean, look, it's hard for me. I, I I kind of think I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur by the time I was 12, which because my dad was an entrepreneur. So I had this like unfair cheat code of seeing someone in that position and yep. started my first real company at 25, which I think with kids and, you know, uh, would have been really hard. Like we worked hard. We had no idea what we were doing. And, and I don't other than if you've been really like experienced in a business or maybe early on in another business, I don't know how you learn that, but maybe you do. Maybe at 55, you were the the founding employee and the VP for something for 10 years. It really depends on where you're at. I think to come in cold at 55, I think it would be challenging. Um, I'm sure lots of people have done it. I'm sure there's pl plenty of evidence that it happens, but I think it would be harder than if you have no, you know, 55 is interesting by the way, because you may be an empty nester. So it might be easier. There's actually the season of life between like, right. 30 it's and like 50. 30, to, 30 to 45 is the hardest. And then like when you, your time yeah. starts to free up because your kids have reached maturity, it could be easier. Yeah. Yeah. From a time and sort of obligation and where you may want to allocate perspective. But yeah, I, I think if you know you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, more than 66%, like you're more than that confident, like do it as young as you possibly can. If you're not sure, some people get in 10, 15 years, they go work at McKinsey, they go do, and then they're like, you know what? I think I want to start something. There's nothing wrong with starting something at 40 with two little kids at home. It's, you know, again, it's, you have to solve around that. It's not something you can ignore. Um, but there's nothing wrong with it. And I don't necessarily, I've seen people who are just as motivated by their families, uh, in terms of being successful as I've seen people who are, who have find it a challenge to balance them. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And what I'd say is it's a very, 
careful balance in understanding truly what's motivating you because I think there are a lot of people also who say they're motivated by their families, but they end up spending no time with their families in service of trying to provide for their families, which I think can end up becoming a perverted motivation. I think you're spot on with the motivations changing over time. Like at the highest level, when we built Morning Brew, my motivation was, let's call it 60% money, 40% love for the game. Now I would say it is pretty... There's still money drive there. Like I think for me to say that I wasn't motivated by money would just be false because I'm not working on nonprofits. I'm not doing things that don't get you to make money. But I'd say it's probably closer to like 70% learning and growth for myself and then 30% making money today. And but also I think for you, know, you the, fun is important. Yes, being fun, being playful, for sure. Like ways that I can act like a kid again are for sure a big piece of motivation for me. Um, and then I would say, you know, a question I always ask myself because I didn't, you know, have the upbringing you did where like, you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur for a long time. I, I, I didn't know that about myself. I more just saw myself as like an inventor or a tinkerer growing up. And so I always do have this question, like, how do I know if I truly want, like, truly love being an entrepreneur versus there's something else that I could love even more? Like, I, I don't know. And so something I've kind of made like a, a, a healthy rule for myself is in my free time, trying as many new experiences and activities as possible. That. Because if there's some activity that really speaks to me that I love so much, I shouldn't be inhibiting myself from doing that more if I find it to be more enjoyable than building a business. And so that's how I try to balance totally. like doing what I think I enjoy today, but creating little options out there to find things that I could like more. Well, that was a great question from our listener. Shoot us an email again at thecrazyonesatmorningbrew.com and we're gonna continue answering questions throughout these episodes or it'll just give us ideas for things to talk about in the episode. But I love this style of just like, us chatting like we'd normally chat and we just happen to be recording the show. Jesse, anything else before we sign off? Nope. Have a great week, everyone. Keep grinding. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.